Good afternoon. This is Dr. Dan Guerra coming to you from Authentic Biochemistry Studios in the Inland Pacific Northwest. Today is Monday, the 13th of September, 2021. Uh, we have been really getting close to the end of this huge arc of lectures on aging. And I told you I was going to fill in a few blanks by giving you audio lectures before I do the video. I was going to do the one that I have in front of me today as a video, but then realized that we can cover more ground uh, by just doing a regular narrative lecture. The reason is I don't see a lot of visuals uh, that are in uh, what I want to talk about today. And so I think we can get this compartmentalized and move on because th when I do the video lectures, I like to use a lot more um, vi uh, visuals and that is not necessary today. So let's just get into this. Now, what I want to talk about today is um, some aspect of basic membrane biology, membrane biochemistry. And so we're just going to call this a general biochem lecture on membranes. Now, what are some of the functions of membranes? One is they serve as semi-permeable isolating barriers, and they separate the contents of the cell from everything external to it. Depending on where these membranes are, they can also separate pathway constituents, for example, within organelles, such as the mitochondria. And that can help also to coordinate cellular homeostasis. Proteins in cell membranes also have many functions. You know that I emphasize lipids, but we can talk about protein uh, for a little bit. <laughs> there, what proteins do, of course, in association with the membrane lipid, <clears throat> is transport substances across the membrane. There are also enzymes within the membrane, such as sphingomyelinase and phospholipase A2, as well as adenylate cyclase. Those are three I can think of top of my head. And of course, those all catalyze regular, straightforward biochemical reactions. The membrane also has uh, proteins that act as receptors. They're typically on the exterior leaflet or exterior surface, and they will bind, of course, usually an external ligand that can be an endocrine hormone, or that could be paracrine, or that can actually be an autocrine ligand. Uh, so think about hormones, growth factors, anything that stimulates a response through protein transduction. Then <laughs> also there are mediators. Mediators themselves will aid ligand receptor complexes in triggering a sequence of events, usually second messengers, that's like cyclic AMP, that will alter metabolism and ultimately, that gets produced, of course, intracellularly, right? So another aspect of plasma membrane that, of course, you're aware of is that it's selective permeability. Uh, that's necessary because you're going to be generating channels and ion pumps. Uh, we're going to talk about calcium pump here in a moment. Um, and that's usually where some kind of charged substance, such as an anion or a cation, can be facilitatively transported across the membrane. There are, of course, also those specific receptors, like I was just talking about, for ligands. And the major example there is a hormone, like, say, insulin binding. Um, you can also have a selective permeability to exchange specific organic compounds from the exterior to the interior. 
So you can have exocytosis and you can have endocytosis. So exocytosis can include movement of, for example, RNA from a cell outside the cell. That RNA can then function later on as interfering RNA or a component of competitive endogenous RNA for other cells after uptake. Uh, but also exocytosis can simply just include <laughs> glycoprotein secretion, such as the immunoglobulins, for example, or the cytokines, another good example. Now, aging has a major role to discuss in membrane integrity. We can talk about sarcopenia, skeletal muscle contraction, and chronic myopathies. We can talk about cardiovascular disease. That's associated with cardiac muscle contraction and heart disease, atherosclerosis, hypertrophy, uh, myocardial infarction, and even stroke. Then there is the peripheral cell membrane disruption, and that involves receptors and channel-mediated injuries, and that could be triggered by reactive oxygen species. It could also be triggered by the uh, quite uh, canonical phospholipase A2, cyclooxygenase, lipoxygenase pathways we've been talking about, generating eicosanoas, for example, which are oxygenated fatty acids, which act as their own um, local hormone. They're known uh, collectively, if they're C20 in uh, chain length, carbon chain length, as eicosanoids. Of course, peripheral cell membrane disruption will also allow in immune cells, and there is a component of that uptake of immune cells that's associated with extracellular matrix proteases, metalloproteases. There's also autophagy and apoptosis, which can follow peripheral cell membrane disruption. We could talk more specifically about neuronal membrane corruption, and this can include microglial-induced inflammatory responses. It can indeed, because of the aging we've been discussing, involve senescence. You also have astrogliosis. And then there are multiple diseases linked to this neuronal membrane corruption. Those are, for example, MS. Must, uh, and uh, also we must include AD, PD, and of course, prefrontal dementia, right? So multiple sclerosis, Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's disease, and PFD are all associated with neuronal membrane corruption. And that could be associated with a chronological, that is aging response, superimposed sometimes on a stress-induced aging signaling. Toxins, including pharmaceuticals, hemodynamic agents, uh, drugs and toxins like ethanol, uh, and, of course, encephalitis or inflammation in, after a pathogenic infection, all can lead to blood-brain barrier integrity loss. And when that BBB integrity is disintegrated at any level, if repair isn't quickly amended to that lesion, you can have multiple translocation of very toxic substances into the CNS. There's also long-distance innate in acquired immune cells, cytokine, chemokine, growth factor-stimulated cellular necrosis, and or oncogenesis. Now, we know that membranes form specialized compartments. So organelles have specialized functions, mitochondria for, for example, bioenergetics, ER for glycoprotein synthesis, Golgi complex for more glycoprotein and also glycolipid biosynthesis. 
Uh, organelle is also a localized pathways, and within those pathways are individual discrete enzymes. Uh, organelles can also be associated with excitation response coupling, and indeed most significantly in energy transduction cascades, such as oxidative phosphorylation in the inner mitochondrial membrane link of the electron transport chain. Another thing that we get with membranes is you get an internal aqueous compartmentalization. In fact, intracellular fluid is about two-thirds of all the total water in a living system such as the human body. Now that intracellular fluid will be rich potassium, magnesium ions. Phosphate uh, will also be a major anion. And the protein concentration, of course, is much higher intracellularly. That's going to cause an osmotic differential across the plasma membrane. The extracellular fluid in total is only about a third of the total water. Now, it's going to be really high in sodium and calcium ions, monovalent divalent cations there specifically and discreetly. Chloride is going to be the major anion extracellular. And, of course, you know that circulating glucose is going to be much higher extracellular than intracellular. To give you some idea here, sodium extracellular is about 140 millimole, uh, millimolar, whereas intracellular, it's only 10. Potassium, just the opposite, 4 millimolar extracellular, 140 intra. Calcium, much tighter, but at one whole order of magnitude. So free calcium that's non-protein bound can be anywhere from 2 to 5 millimole per liter extracellular. And commonly, intracellularly, it's only at the 0.1 micromolar down to further nanomolar and even uh, sub-nanomolar ranges for calcium because there's a lot of calcium stored in sarcoplasmic reticulum, endoplasmic reticulum, for example. So those are some ideas uh, of what uh, the differential is between extracellular and intracellular. So we can talk also, and there's a lot more detail here I'll do in the video lectures where I can show you structures, but we can talk about the composition of the membrane in terms of lipids. Um, we can classify the major complex lipids as either uh, phospholipids, phospholipids, and cholesterol or prenolipids. Those are the three major types of lipids that that membranes are composed of. So phospholipids, you have the phospholipids, and those are much more common. They have a glycerol backbone. That's a three-carbon. Uh, sugar alcohol backbone. Usually you have two fatty acids, the one and two position, which are an ester linkage. And then you have, with the, with the, for those fatty acids, almost always they're even numbered. Uh, C16, C18, C20 is very common in the two position. Sometimes you have unbranched, either saturated or unsaturated fatty acids at the two position as well. Uh, and those can differ from steric acid in the two position, which has a specific role to play in metabolism, or you could have arachidonic acid, which of course is 20 colon four with double bonds in the five, eight, 11, and 14 positions, all cis double bonds, you know, that makes that an omega six. In the three position, you often have a, what's called just simply chemically a phosphorylated alcohol. So for phosphatidic acid, that's just one, two diacyglycerol three phosphate. That's probably the simplest of all the different structures you may find there. But you also have ethanolamine, choline, which is a trimethylated, uh, uh, choline is trimethylated ethanolamine. You can have serine at the three position of glycerol lipids, and you can have sugars 
such as glucose or inositol, a very important signaling sugar in the three position. Obviously, phospholipases are going to trigger and mobilize those. The second major phospholipid are actually the phospholipids. You have a sphingosine backbone. Remember that is a sphingosine uh, uh, is actually a product of palmitic acid and serine, right? Uh, uh, that is the combining of a palmitic acid to a serine residue is what sphingosine is. And then you put a double bond in that palmitic acid in the seven position of palmitoleic acid. That ultimately is what the sphingosine backbone looks like. You also add a fatty acid to that, that nitrogen atom making an amide linkage. And then you have a primary hydroxyl group of sphingosine, and that's often a sterified, when especially with sphingomyelin, to phosphonylcholine. So when you have a sphingomyelin, that would be prominent in the coating of myelin sheath axons, right? So that's a most, it's a very general description of, of a sphingomyelin. You also have the glycososphingolipids. These, of course, mean they have a carbohydrate, uh, so cerebrosides and gangliosides are some of the uh, subclasses. They're all derived from sphingosine again. They differ from sphingomyelin, of course, and what the group is going to be attached to that primary hydroxyl group on the sphingosine backbone. So sphingomyelin, I already told you, is phosphonylcholine, but cerebrosides typically have only a single hexosugar, glucose or galactose are common. And then the gangliosides usually have a carbohydrate chain of three or more. And at least one of those carbohydrates is sialic acid, which we will go, we'll go into great detail involving uh, some of the pathophysiology of Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's disease, and prefrontal dementia when we get there. And again, all of that will show you these structures, and that's going to be in a regular video lecture. The sterols, the most common sterol in membranes, plasma membrane, is cholesterol. Um, of course, it's, it could be synthesized de novo, right, via cholesterologenesis, acetyl-CoA. Um, in fact, most of the cholesterol you find in the cell that isn't otherwise being translocated via uh, ester, fatty ester forms and lipoproteins is going to be found in the plasma membrane of all cells. There's much less cholesterol in mitochondria, Golgi, and much less indeed even more in nuclear membranes. That's going to have a lot to do with the trafficking of cholesterol from its biogenesis or from its storage to its utilization in reifying the cholesterol levels in the plasma membrane, generating for one thing a, um, an induced structural freezing associated with the double bonds linked to the uh, fatty acids, which are polyunsaturated. When I say freezing, that means an ordering response. And the ordering of the membrane will then allow for protein adduct channels to form and water channels to form. So cholesterol tends to order the membrane, but in so doing also allows the more transduction and diffusion of and I would call it transdiffusion of polar substances across the plasma membrane. So anyways, cholesterol is generally far more abundant in the plasma membrane than it is in the intracellular membrane systems. And again, the way it functions, and I'll show you all the detail when we get into the video lectures, it will, uh, what we call intercalate or interdigitate among phospholipids of the membrane. 
with its hydroxyl group at the aqueous interface and the remainder of that prenal molecule within the leaflet of the membrane. So again, that's going to be generally an ordering um, biophysical phenomenon when you increase the amount of cholesterol in the membrane. I'll explain to you that, that in much more detail. So remember that membrane lipids in general are amphipathic. That means they have a hydrophobic, hydrophilic uh, organization. So because of that, they function some ways like detergents, but detergents usually free. And because these membrane lipids are not free, but bound in this macromolecular structure, you don't get the detergent effect unless the membrane is disrupted. Then you can have further disruption because of the freeing up of those membrane lipids. But generally you have a polar head group and then a non-polar tail. A non-polar tail simply means it's going to be a long chain fatty acid. A saturated fatty acid is going to give you a more straight or linear tail in that uh, membrane lipid. Unsaturated fatty acids are going to generate kinks in the tail. And generally those uh, fatty acids are of cis geometry. And we'll, we've talked about that in the past. We'll talk about it again because there are some trans fatty acids which are naturally occurring and very common in the membrane. In fact, all sphingolipids have trans fatty acids. I just told you that the palmitoleic acid has a trans double bond in it, and sphingolipids are very common in nature. So you can ask, what's the effect of unsaturated fatty acids? Uh, it's pretty straightforward. The more double bonds you put into a fatty acid, so that makes it polyunsaturated, the membrane becomes more fluid. We call it fluidity. A matrix of fluidity means that the membrane is more biologically and domain active. And that means that because those membranes can be altered more at the level of polarization, depolarization, they're found in more active um, membrane surfaces, such as during action potential transduction in axon-mediated neural transmission in the central nervous system and the peripheral nervous system. So that's just a very brief outline. I'm going to give you a lot more detail of that. <laughs> now, because membrane lipids form bilayers, very simple uh, uh, membrane lipid uh, configuration with using, again, amphipathic phospholipids as an example, you're going to have something with two different solubilities, one hydrophobic, one hydrophilic. So an aqueous solvent, the, those uh, phospholipids, will form first into a thermodynamically favorable micellar form where the hydrophobic region is interior and the hydrophilic region is exterior. And then in the core of that micellar structure, that's a circular structure, if you want to put it in your mind what it might look like, you can also have ions trapped in there or proteins trapped in there, of course. All right. Now, once those micelles are formed, depending on how you increase the amount of phospholipid and then the composition of those phospholipids, you'll start to form a bimolecular layer or a bilayer. And of course, that will satisfy all the biophysical thermodynamics that you need with an amphipathic molecule. So only the ends or the edges of the bilayer is exposed to an unfavorable hydrophilic environment. And that will eliminate any extra biophysical organizations so that you don't get multiple folding of those membranes. You often have a bilayer. Sometimes you have more complex, what they call hex two phase. And again, I'm not going to go into detail of the chemistry of that because I want to show you that in a um, video presentation, but you also, there's at least three or four different kinds of 
membrane structures. Basically, you have a closed bilayer, it's most common. And that closed bilayer then, because it seals itself back up, is impermeable, except for the channels that are generated and enhanced because of cholesterol levels of that plasma membrane. Mostly it's impermeable to water-soluble molecules. So this is then, of course, allows for the semi-permeability of membranes, generating from the cell, from internal to external. So all cellular life requires that membrane. And that's why there's a good argument to suggest that it wasn't until you had membrane lipids uh, primarily doing biophysical alterations and structure function relationships that ultimately led to the closing of an intracellular or intracompartment to an extra compartment that you start to get cellular uh, uh, organization, meaning then the beginning of living systems. So you had to have an internal versus an external environment. And you had to have a semi-permeable communication system, which would have been that early uh, proto-membrane that will allow for things like nucleic acids and proteins and carbohydrates to move in and out of those cells. And thus, if nucleic acids are in there and, they, and this nucleic acids are of the DNA or RNA type, ultimately you can get start getting replication. And with replication, once transcription and translation are worked out, at the biochemical level, then you can start getting cells with autonomy and also self-replicative capacity, don't you know? But the membrane lipid was the first thing that had to occur. So remember too, there are a lot of materials that are lipid soluble. So gases, for example, molecular oxygen is somewhat lipid soluble. Carbon dioxide, nitrogen gas, N2 is. And there's, that's because there's little interaction of any of those gases with solvents. So because even if they have, for example, a biradical structure of oxygen, it's not going to interact with a lipid matrix, right? So those gases tend to freely, like nitric oxide too, even though it has a strong ionic component to it, will freely uh, diffuse through the hydrophobic regions of the membrane, not the hydrophilic regions, but the hydrophobic. Uh, you also, of course, because you have this lipid membrane, things which are lipid will dissolve because like dissolves like. So steroid hormones are going to much more easily traverse the membrane by a layer, although steroid hormones are not such a good example because rather than free diffusion, you tend to use steroid hormones binding to a receptor. And then that receptor protein is endocytose with its ligand. Um, for example, something that binds cortisol, for example. Uh, and then we'll bring that ligand protein complex into the cell and eventually can migrate to the nucleus and then act as a transacting factor to generate transcription. This is, for example, how retinoic acid works and how cholecalciferol or vitamin D function basically as transcription factors once they're bound to their protein, which they first encounter at the plasma membrane. You also have organic non-electrolyte molecules, and their diffusion will be dependent entirely on how they move through an oil-water partition coefficient. And again, I'm going to show you some of that in great detail when I do give you a video lecture because it's quite um, therapeutically knowledge-increasing to understand the dynamics of how membranes function. You also have non-lipid soluble molecules. So reactive proteins are amphipathic themselves because there's a lot, of, a lot of hydrophobic or neutral amino acids. So they can be inserted in a lipid bilayer. In fact, they are associated with specific annular lipids. 
And these proteins then are the component that will result in ion channels and also in receptors. So this again now facilitates the entire movement of ions and signal transduction cascades. So these non-lipid soluble molecules, even though they have an amphipathic nature, will also function as transporters of much larger molecules. What? Such things as cytokines and chemokines can be transported. Those are huge glycoproteins in and out of cells uh, because of the formation of these protein interaction components. Non-lipid soluble molecules, for example, side chains determine the hydrophobic nature of them. So if you have strongly hydrophobic side chains, you'll have few weakly hydrophobic remainder hydrophilic residues, right? So depending on the number of hydrophobic side chains, there's only a few in the polypeptide, you're going to have very weak hydrophobic interactions and very strong hydrophilic. But as you increase the amount of hydrophobic side chains in a protein, you're going to have increasing amount of hydrophobic interactions. So this will change completely the dynamics of a membrane. Because of this, you get protein sorting in the membrane, and that means protein content itself, just the simple content, not just the composition, will alter according to the hydrophobicity of the membranes that are already uh, targeted, translocated, and that find a home in the plasma membrane. So this is going to, again, involve the trapping of enzymes, transport proteins, and receptors, based on their fluid dynamics between hydrophilic and hydrophobic interactions. Again, all this probably occurring pre-cellular life, just to begin with, right? Just having uh, alkanes uh, functioning in an aqueous environment will get you there. All this means that membranes and the components within the membranes are highly dynamic structures. So you have lipids and proteins and carbohydrates, usually covalently modifying the lipids and proteins. And all that turns over as well turns over with the help of peroxisomes, mitochondria, endoplasmic reticulum, and Golgi. So you have different lipids associated with different proteins with individual turnover rates. This is going to markedly affect the signaling across the membrane from the plasma membrane to the extracellular environment and therefore can uh, contain and alter the geometry and the biophysics of those interactions, leading then to different kinds of communication between the exterior and the interior environment. Again, all at a biophysical level, and then superimposed on that is all the expression of genes, which will regulate the enzymes, which will modify things like lipids and proteins, so that that signaling becomes more florid in detail, generating a plenum of responses, which are then geometrically increased, you see. So, we can talk about different ways that the plasma membrane can be disrupted. And that's something that's really important in aging. If you haven't thought about this before, you're going to learn about it now in the next couple of minutes. So you have what's called intrinsic plasma membrane repair. This can involve membrane fusion and replacement strategies. This can be, for example, via exocytosis. And there's an exocytosis mediated repair. And that will involve removal of damaged membranes, usually intracellularly into the peroxisome. Um, and this can also be uh, the result of endocytosis of endosomes. So you have endocytotic mediated repair or what we call micro shedding of the membrane. 
And this can be lipid and protein-driven membrane remodeling and ultimately repair of a membrane corruption or disruption. That's an intrinsic plasma membrane repair process. So in this exocytosis-mediated repair, you have intracellular membrane sources. Those would be things like endosomes, as I mentioned, or even just the lysosome or phagolysosome. And that will fuse with the plasma membrane. So there's a lysosome-mediated repair in muscle cells, astrocytes, macrophages, for example. The fusion will be proximal to the leaflet of the plasma membrane disruption site. And that will occur either a continuous membrane overlay, uh, um, corresponding to the damage region, or even a biophysical phenomenon known as tension reduction, which membrane refs migrate according to their solubility and pressure gradient distribution within the cell and across the plasma membrane. Ultimately, that can lead to a repair by patch formation, and that probably resolves the larger disruption of membrane. There's also an underlying mechanism that's triggered by molecular sensors that directs after a detection of an injury, and that's followed by a nucleation of intracellular vesicles, typically at the site of the corruption or injury site, and then that will result in a subsequent fusion of that membrane uh, lipid raft. I'm going to stop there right when it gets interesting, right? Uh, Because I want to talk a lot about membrane repair, because that is often what gets corrupted in the aging cellular system. The lack of membrane repair, we talk a lot about DNA damage, right? And protein damage via oxygenation oxygenation or oxidation, right? But we get a lot of membrane damage. And the more membrane damage, that's when you start leading to cellular senescence. And that, of course, is a hallmark of aging. This is Dr. Dan Guerra coming to Authentic Biochemistry Studios on the 13th of September, 2021, saying bye for now.